Welcome to the Arab Spring, a history. Episode 3 From the Ashes 1919 saw Europe in ashes, both figuratively and literally. Few countries were in bad a shape as the Ottomans. Already seen as Europe's sick man, the Ottomans had pushed through reforms which had been unsuccessful. They bet on the wrong horse in the bloodiest war of that generation. While peace negotiations were ongoing at Versailles to fix Europe, the Ottoman capital was occupied by the Allies and the country was surrounded. The Sultan was effectively powerless, with the army revolting. The Greeks were eager to take back what had once been theirs, hundreds of years before, and were determined to take back Constantinople and the west coast of Asia Minor. This was not just words, they actually invaded, and were doing very well. Other ethnic groups such as the Armenians and the Kurds wanted independence, this was all within the Ottoman heartland. The empire had already been stripped away as British and French politicians divided the region on maps in misty cities a thousand miles away. No one expected the Ottoman Empire to survive. And they were right. It didn't. Very few expected any united nation to emerge from these ashes. But yet, one did. It was not due to a distant power, nor an aristocrat, nor the sultan, but an upstart and brilliant army officer named Mustafa Kemal, who was currently leading the revolt against his monarch. Kemal would be the first leader to really challenge the imperial west, and win, making him one of the greatest figures in world history. Not a bad career. Before we see how he did it, let's back up a bit. Who was Mustafa Kemal? Mustafa was born in 1881, in the second city of the empire, Salonika. His father was a customs officer and merchant. He traded in timber, having done poorly in the salt trade. His father died when Mustafa was only seven, and he was raised by his mother. His father's family contained some men with religious learning, while his mother's family were mostly farm managers. His family was, ever so briefly, well off, while his father traded in timber. But his father's death left them in poverty. There was a way out of this poverty. A state education followed by a state career. Mustafa seized this chance, and enrolled in a military school. Upon registering, he chose a second name, Kamal. 
Mustafa was young, bright, and hard-working, and soon became fascinated with the ideas of the time, that something had to be done to save the empire, and that freedom was the way to do this. While still at school, he learned French, whose thinking would be a great influence on him. He began his studies in 1899, in the War College of Constantinople, and immediately became involved in conspiracies there. He completed his course in 1905, and became a staff captain, and began practical training in Syria, fighting rebels. He began his own secret society, but soon joined up to the much larger CUP in 1908. When the CUP took over in 1908, he was dispatched to Libya to look after the regime there, and he proved remarkably successful at getting the local rebels on his side. The CUP hierarchy was impressed. This combined with his stint in Syria led them to view him as an Arab specialist who could best be used away from the centre of political power. He returned to Macedonia in 1908, where he fought back against rebels, but was outshone by Enver Bey. Once the CUP launched their coup and became heavily involved in politics, he felt quite uneasy about it, arguing that the army should keep out of politics. Officially, the CUP agreed with him, but in practice, they ignored it. As Mustafa would later do. He continued to move around, in 1910 observing the French military, in 1911 fighting the Italians in Cyrenaica with success, but the Balkan War of 1912 negated this, and the territory was lost. Mustafa went to Vienna to receive treatment for an eye infection he received in the desert, and missed the Balkan War. In 1913, he became a diplomat to Bulgaria in Sofia. Mustafa was against the Ottomans joining the Great War, along with much of the hierarchy of the CUP, but Enver had got his way. So Mustafa merely asked, repeatedly, to be given a different task than being a diplomat slash spy in Sofia. As the war turned against the Ottomans, his wish was granted in 1915, as he was deployed at Gallipoli to face the Allied landing, something he did with great success. Already highly regarded, Mustafa made his reputation at Gallipoli. He proved a brilliant field commander, being much more successful than Enver. Critical of his superiors, and opposed to the German officers in the Ottoman command structure, Mustafa resigned his post. He was not widely known to the general public, but had a reputation among army officers. Enver was greatly offended, and Mustafa struggled to get another position, eventually securing a position on the Eastern Front, fighting the Ottomans in the Caucasus and the British in Syria. He fought well, but again the relationship with Germans proved a breaking point, and he soon resigned and returned to Constantinople. He went back to his command in the East, but the front soon collapsed. He fled the British, 
retreating into Anatolia. The war ended, the Germans went home, and Mustafa found himself in control of the Syrian front. He returned to the capital in November 1918, where the CUP had fled and a new government was being set up. He tried to be appointed Minister for War in the new government. Note the post. It's one that we'll see repeated as one for reformers. But was passed over. Instead, he secured the position of Inspector of Ottoman Troops in Central and Eastern Anatolia. His task was to disarm the troops and maintain order. He would do the opposite of both. So, here we are, 1919. Kamal described the situation as follows. The long years of the Great War had left the people exhausted and impoverished. Those who had pushed the nation and the country into the World War had fled, anxious for nothing but their own safety. Vadetin, the degenerate occupant of the throne, and the Caliphate, was seeking some despicable way to save his person and his throne, the only objects of his anxiety. The cabinet, headed by Damad Ferid Pasha, was weak and lacked dignity and courage. It was subservient only to the will of the Sultan, and agreed to every proposal that could protect its members and their sovereign. The army had been deprived of their arms and ammunition, and this process was continuing. The Entente powers did not consider it necessary to respect the terms of the armistice. On various pretexts, Entente fleets and troops remained at Constantinople. The province of Andana was occupied by the French, Ufra, Maras, Antep by the English. Italian troops were in Italia and Cogne, and English soldiers in Merifson and Samson. Foreign officers and officials and their special agents were everywhere. Finally, on the 15th of May, the Greek army, with the consent of the Entente powers, landed at Izmir. On the 19th of May, 1919, Kamal landed at Samson, on the Black Sea coast, and immediately secured the loyalty of the Ottoman army. There was already a local resistance to the Allies, those who had taken advantage of their Christian neighbours and who feared an Allied takeover. Kamal swiftly united these various groups into a cohesive force, as soon as the Allies realised what Kamal was doing, they pushed the Sultan to recall him, but Kamal refused to go. He was dismissed from official office. Kamal managed to survive this period by claiming he was not a rebel, but wanted to free the Sultan from Allied control. By this point, the Sultan had no control over the country. Firmly in the hands of the nationalists, he was forced to negotiate and it was agreed that there would be elections before any peace talks. The Greeks boycotted the vote, so the Turkish nationalists won the election by a landslide. Kemal was elected, but he didn't take his seat. He knew Constantinople was vulnerable, and so he set up his headquarters at Ankara. The new assembly, meeting in Constantinople, 
demanded they remain an undivided state on 1918 borders. In response, the British, with the consent of the other Allies, formally occupied Constantinople, and the Assembly was broken up. Despite the best efforts of the British, most attendants of the Assembly, deputies, escaped from Constantinople and made for the power base of the most prominent of them, Mustafa Kemal, in Ankara. Kemal set up a new assembly there, the Grand National Assembly, or GNA, which was declared to be the state's sovereign body. It was convened on the 23rd of April 1920, and Mustafa Kemal was elected president, both of the legislature and the executive, which was modelled on the Soviet commissars. He remained a neutral within the assembly, allowing him to remain untarnished as other figures rose and fell from power. The GNA promised its loyalty to the Sultan, but this was only an excuse. In practice, the GNA was a rebel government with a loss of enemies. It needed some friends. It found one to the north, in Bolshevik Russia. The Bolsheviks sent much-needed finance and arms to help the rebels, first unofficially, and then by a formal treaty in March 1921, ending the isolation the movement had been experiencing. While the rebels united themselves, the West was deeply divided. The French and Italians wanted to increase their own influence in the region, and to reduce that of Britain's. Particularly, Britain's attempts to act by proxy using Greece. Britain wanted to keep the French and Italians out of the Mediterranean to protect their interests in India, at all costs. They were quite clearly not going to get anything done like this. America could have solved the situation here, but chose not to. The Middle East was being divided up by the imperial powers, officially to create self-governing states, but in reality it was another way of expanding their empires. France had a mandate to create a government for Lebanon and Syria, Britain for Palestine, Transjordan and Iraq. America was expected to take the mandate for the Armenians, trying to form a state in the Caucasus, and for Turkey. America had become tired of intervening in Europe. She had realistically gained nothing from World War I, having been provoked into joining, and resented it. She turned to focus inwards for the 1920s, against the wishes of Woodrow Wilson. By leaving the situation in Turkey and Armenia unresolved, the situation was made incredibly complicated. The Allies tried to put a peace treaty together, the Treaty of Sevres, which was offered in the August of 1920. A Turkey would exist, but would be much smaller, with much land being carved up. The Turkish state was at the will of the Allies. The Sultan signed but for him to remain in power, he needed to make sure the nationalist movement failed. The Sultan was fast losing control, and tried to consolidate his supporters, 
but he failed to do this. Kamal was able to exploit divisions within them, and use Islam as a unifying force to gain control of Anatolia piece by piece. Mustafa Kemal and the GNA had successfully taken domestic control. The Sultan was powerless in British-occupied Constantinople, and so the rebels turned their attention to their numerous foreign enemies. First, they looked to secure their eastern flank. The Armenians were crushed in 1920, and the GNA looked to the western powers, and the much greater threat of the Greeks. By now, it was blindingly obvious that the great powers could not impose the Treaty of Sivret. France and Italy thus pulled out, reaching formal agreements with the nationalists in 1921. Only the British, supporting the Greeks, were left. Greece had been promised Constantinople and western Anatolia, specifically the area around Izmir by the British. This was unacceptable to the Turks, and Britain tried to distance itself from such a position to secure a peace. The Greeks were not daunted, and pushed inland, very soon threatening Ankara. This would make, or break, the GNA. Kemal was appointed commander-in-chief with emergency powers, and the nation watched to see what would happen. Kemal battled with the Greeks, and in September 1921, he fought the Greeks to a standstill, beginning a counter-attack. With the help of his right-hand man, Inawu, they pushed the Greeks back, and within a year had pushed them out of Asia Minor. The two were granted titles by the GNA. Inowu was granted the name Ismet for his victory at Izmir. The final stage was pushing the Greeks out of European Turkey, achieved quickly, although war almost broke out with Britain in the process. Kemal had won his wars, both domestic and foreign. All that was required now was formal ratification, both of which would be linked. The British tried to organise peace, involving the nationalists and the Sultan, inviting both to send a delegation. The Sultan agreed, which gave Kemal the perfect pretext to begin his domestic reforms, and rectify the mistakes of the young Turks, who had been determined to hold on to the past. On November the 1st, 1922, the GNA voted to depose the Sultan, who fled into exile, and abolish the 700-year-old Sultanate. The majority of people wanted to keep the Sultan, but Kemal was determined that, unlike the Young Turks, this would truly be a new beginning. On the 29th of October, 1923, the country was formally made a republic, with Kemal as president and the former Sultan's nephew as Caliph, the head of Sunni Islam. Turkey was born. In 1923, Turkey finally negotiated peace internationally, agreeing to the Treaty of Lausanne. This saw almost all Turkish demands agreed to. The hopes of a nation by the Kurds and Armenians were crushed.
Turkey was not granted the city of Mosul, which he had asked for. This would be part of the British mandate for the new kingdom of Iraq. But Turkey did achieve most of her 1918 borders. Seemingly against all the odds, Turkey existed. But this is only half the story. Turkey had been born, but as the saying goes, Rome wasn't built in a day. Kemal had created a state, but he had yet to create a nation. This is what we will look at next week, as we follow his reforms, and see how he succeeded where the Young Turks failed. If you've enjoyed the show, there are lots of things you can do. Visit us in the usual places online, thehistoryofpodcast.blogspot.com, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, twitter.com forward slash thehistoryofpod, youtube.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com, or you could leave an iTunes review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'll see you next week when we see how Mustafa Kemal became Ataturk. Allah